This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Adam Tickets, moviegoing for the 21st century. Adam Tickets is a free app that lets you plan movie outings with your friends and also lets you buy tickets and snacks ahead of time, letting you skip the long lines. Get $5 off your first order by using the promo code GALAXY. So again, the app is called Adam Tickets, A-T-O-M Tickets, and don't forget to use the promo code GALAXY. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 239 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the CBS series Brains Ed about insects from outer space who infect the brains of DC politicians, making them increasingly partisan. And this will involve spoilers for the entire first season of Brain Dead, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Loosed Upon the World and What the Bleep is That? His new anthology, Cosmic Powers, will be out in April. So John, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, you might think I'm crazy, but I'm really excited to talk about what happened previously <laughs> on Brain Dead. <laughs> then next up, we've got Grady Hendrix making his ninth appearance on the show. He's the author of such books as Satan Loves You and My Best Friend's Exorcism, and his novel Horror Store, about a haunted Ikea, is being developed for television by Gail Berman, producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. His nonfiction book Paperbacks from Hell, about the horror boom of the 70s and 80s, will be out in September. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Thank you, and I'm hoping not to screw it up and get to number 10. <laughs> and also joining us today is Erin Lindsay. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace Books, as well as the Nicholas Lenore series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. She spent over a decade working for the United Nations in dozens of countries around the world, and she also writes the Villain of the Month feature over at Pornokitch.com. Her latest Bloodbound novel, Bloodsworn, is out now. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Okay, and so I started watching the show Brain Dead because back in October, John emailed me and said I should check it out. And at that time, he wrote, We're about halfway through it and are loving it. Hopefully it gets picked up. I'm kind of concerned about it because I've heard, like, no one talking about it. <laughs> and I had never heard of it until John mentioned it. But I went and watched it, and I, I liked it quite a bit. So I was like, sure, we can talk about that. And so then we started reaching out to some of our friends to see who else had seen the show. And the answer was apparently nobody. <laughs> and uh, so I'm just kind of curious, John, how did you come to be the only person on Earth who's seen this show? <laughs> well, it involves this uh, complicated thing with space bugs. But um, <laughs> no, uh, uh, you know, um, I saw a commercial for it, uh, you know, after some show or whatever. And um, actually, I was a fan of The Good Wife, uh, which is the show that the producers of this show produced before this. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure like after an episode of The Good Wife in the last season or something, they just had like a, you know, a bumper at the end, uh, 
uh, advertising uh, brain dead. And uh, so like, I kind of saw it and, and I wasn't really clear what it was. It seemed a really bizarre <laughs> direction for them to go in after The Good Wife, which was just a pretty much straightforward legal thriller type show. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I just, I just wanted to check it out based on the fact that it was from the producers of The Good Wife, um, because that was really well written and clever. Um, and, and then, of course, I, I saw how weird it looked. I was like, well, I got to watch that. Um, unfortunately, I, I only, uh, I didn't watch it right when it aired. So I didn't, I, I wasn't able to get in on the ground floor and like, you know, try to get people talking about it right away. I only saw it um, a couple months after it aired. So I guess I'm part of the problem is what I'm saying. Did you watch it on Amazon Prime? I did. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, um, well, uh, I started to record it on my TiVo or whatever, but like some other recordings got messed up. And so thankfully Amazon Prime had it all, but yeah. Well, right. And as, as John alluded to there, he was right to be concerned about this show because <laughs> I think it had actually been canceled already, even when he sent that email. I think it had been canceled yeah. the week before. Um, but yeah, so uh, we are talking about this show that was canceled long ago, but uh, I, th I still think it's worth talking about because it's a really interesting show. And so... And like hey, and hey, you know what? We're living in the age of uh, streaming media and uh, Netflix picks up all sorts of shows that get canceled and Amazon Prime already has the first season of it. So who knows? If we can get enough people to watch it based on our enthusiastic recommendation, <laughs> maybe someone will make more episodes. That's right. And it's low budge, right? So it's not like one of those ones that's got a high barrier to entry mm -hmm. for some for some network to pick up if they if they feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. So we're living in a post alive television show era now. <laughs> but, Very true. <laughs> but 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 so like I was saying, it was it was, you know, we, we sort of put out the call to people we know and really didn't find many people at all who had seen this show. But one of them was Grady. And <laughs> I thought there was no chance Grady would have seen this show because he's been like in his like sealed chamber for months uh, working on his <laughs> new book. Uh, so I was pretty amazed. But I, I was like, it's weird. Like, it just seems like anything weird, Grady has seen it, no matter how <laughs> obscure or whatever. So I, I just on a whim, I, I asked him and he said, oh, yeah, I love that show. So, Grady, how the hell did you see this show when you've been so busy working on your new book? I actually saw it when it came out. Um, it uh, I'm not sure how I, I may have downloaded it, but I think I saw it on Amazon, but like right after it aired. Um, but my sister, one of my sisters, or actually two of my sisters, are huge, huge Buffy fans, Supernatural fans, Charmed fans. So they're always sending me texts. They're like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And they gave this big thumbs up. So I watched it. And, uh, you know, it was sort of right up my alley. Um, so, yeah, that's it. It wasn't very exciting. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, and then Aaron, I, I really wanted someone on this show who had some sort of real expertise in politics and you know, public affairs and stuff like that. And so Erin has her background with the UN, but she had not seen the show, but she said she would be heroically, heroically willing to uh, binge it this week to be ready for this panel. I uh, did. And I binged the hell out of it. And thank you, because I actually had meant to watch the show. I did see commercials for it and it looked right up my alley. Um, and Tony Shalhoub, I mean, <laughs> I will watch anything that guy's in. So um, I had always meant to watch it, but I just never followed through. Yeah. Okay. Well, so John, so you said that you were a big fan of The Good Wife. And so you were kind of looking forward to the show. Did it, and you said, uh, I guess you said in your email that halfway through you were loving it. Did you continue to love it all the way through? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I thought it was great all the way through. And I, I felt like it really built up to a nice conclusion uh, by the end of the season. Uh, I mean, I was disappointed that it's not going to go any further than this, at least as far as we know, um, since it has been canceled. But um, yeah, I mean, I thought the characters were great all the way through. I, I just love the, the, the plot line. Um, and, and how I, I 
one of the things I love most about it is like how current it is. Like, oh my God, like I don't know if I've ever seen a show that is feels so much like it's set in the present, like as I'm watching it. You know what I mean? Um, it's like I don't know I don't know when they produced it versus when it aired, but it's like it just feels right up to the minute. So um, in terms of like what's going on in politics and stuff, it's like it was crazy. So um, I, I really love that about it. You know, that actual Senate sit-in was like four months before they actually aired the episode with their Senate sit-in. Mm -hmm. So I think they were producing this really on the fly. Mm -hmm. Right. And I just watched an interview with the showrunners and they were talking about how a lot of those TV screens were green screens in the episode. And then like right up to the moment they aired them, they were inserting whatever you know, po politician was still in the running or whatever, you know, so. Ah, interesting. Mm -hmm. That that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a, there was a scene. Um, I feel like they avoided saying any of the candidate names for most of it. And then there was a scene where uh, Ella, I think, says Trump for the first time. And it was several yeah. episodes in. And I was like, oh, I bet they, I bet they dropped that in, you know, like, or they shot that so that they could have it, uh, you know, they could add that in at the last minute once they knew who the actual candidate is. Because, yeah, it, it was very cleverly done. Mm. But do you think maybe that 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 was part of the reason why I, I did feel at certain points that they were pulling their satirical punches. And I wonder if the fact that it was so current was part of that, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to sort of, um, to, to take someone to task or something to task a little bit after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that this was so current with all the, all the, um, with the primaries notably, it made me wonder whether they, you know, did they get notes from the network saying, be careful? Uh, I mean, it wouldn't. It, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I mean, we, uh, from all we've heard about, uh, you know, network interference on things. On the other hand, uh, like I was saying, the, these producers—they just got off uh, a multi-year run of of one of the most successful shows on CBS, The Good Wife. Um, you know, super popular uh, all the mm -hmm. way up until the end. So I would think if anybody had free reign to do what they wanted to do, it would have been them. And actually, just it, it's sort of that's evidenced by this show existing at all. Like who, like who would have greenlit this show if it wasn't for somebody <laughs> yeah. like them? It's like yeah, it's yeah. like when Peter Jackson does Lord of the Rings. Well, of course you can remake King Kong. Do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Um, of course, in his case, he went mad with power. Uh, in in this case, I feel like they did something great. <laughs> well, no, I totally agree with you, John, that it's hard to imagine how this show came to exist or who thought it would work on network television, particularly, you know, because it basically it has to appeal to people who like all three of these things, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of gross out horror, um, political, like, like you have to be pretty into politics, you, you know, in terms of like knowing who Rachel Maddow is and Michael mm -hmm. Moore and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> And then, um, and then sort of the weird sense of humor too. Yeah. And the weird, quirky, offbeat sense of humor. And it seems like, like finding an audience for a show that has one of those things is a little bit of a challenge, but having all three of those things in one show, uh, I'm, I'm like, like you, I'm just amazed that this got green <laughs> in the first place. Yeah. But, you know, to me, it seems almost like a gimme, right? Like, I'm sure people were sitting around in 2015 going, oh, my God, all anyone wants to talk about is the news. All anyone cares about is this election. You know, it'd be a really good idea, a sitcom about the election. Um, you know, that's a can't miss idea. But I kind of think, like, what undermined the show and also what its strength was simultaneously is how sort of lightweight it is. Mm. Um, because I feel like maybe they underestimated how deadly serious everyone takes politics these days um, and thought they could make jokes about it and people would find that funny. And I don't think people who care about politics find anything about politics slightly amusing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm, that could be it. I think too, um, I mean, they got dealt a rough hand, you know, they, their initial starting slot was taken away from them almost immediately. Mm. Um, they got moved to a different time slot. I understand because of the the primaries. And so I don't think that that helped them out. I also personally, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think. I thought in general, the second half was stronger than the first half. Um, I thought they were really picking up steam toward the end and I would have loved to see a season two and see them really settle in because I think one of the things that maybe um, made it difficult for for viewers was the sort of wild tonal shifts that they went through. So at the very beginning, it felt to me a little bit like they couldn't decide quite how wacky they wanted to be. They couldn't decide quite how funny they wanted to be. And there were moments of that were very serious and very dramatic. And that was almost underlined by the fact that you had one of my favorite things about the show is the cast. I thought they were all excellent. And so there were moments where you, you get sucked into feeling like you're watching a very serious show. And then someone's head explodes and there's goo <laughs> everywhere. And so I think that kind of like that kind of whiplash um, is part of the reason why somebody like me would love the show, but maybe mm. part of the reason why someone else would find it a little bit more challenging to settle into. Well, let me talk about my sort of emotional journey watching this show. I actually thought the first couple episodes were terrific. I was totally on board at that point. And then there was a point at which it started feeling a little bit predictable to me. And I was still enjoying mm. it, but I, I, I felt like I kind of knew what the show was. And then there was a part where they started doing just crazy stuff I had not anticipated at all. Mm -hmm. um, and then I got like, more, what? Um, like Michael Moore... And, uh, that's and... got to be the best scene in the show though <laughs> that was so crazy and also the worst yeah <laughs> but 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 so that and, and uh the episode where laurel is potentially going to be waterboarded i would never in a million years have predicted that that was going to be an episode mm -hmm. um mm. and then um i thought i thought it kind of limped across the finish line in the last couple episodes um yeah yes well, I, I wondered. I wondered if they actually got canceled before they finished shooting the last episode or so, and they, you know, tried to wrap it up as much because it's a pretty. pretty I think definitely that's what happened. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so, interesting. Yeah. The last few episodes all have the same air date, and I kind of wonder if they all got dumped onto Amazon really early on. Hmm. Yeah, it could be. Could be. But I also think, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier um, about the writing on the fly, just if you look at it from a storytelling perspective, um, and I do think, I agree that the wheels fell off a little bit at, toward the end, and they started making some kind of random storytelling choices that felt very much like they weren't necessarily that thought through. And the one that sticks out for me is suddenly Gustav is with the NSA. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And if you go sure. back and look at some of the character choices and plot of, of the earlier episodes, that just makes no sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I thought it, I thought at first that that was going to be fake when he pulls it out like that. You know, oh, he thought just thought ahead to make that badge as as you know, sort of uh, subterfuge or whatever. But uh, yeah, it seems like they meant that to be true. And and I wondered if that was something that we're going to reveal later on that they had attended all along and they just had to cram it into that last episode because they knew they had no more episodes. Um, and that you know they would have laid the groundwork to make it feel like it makes more sense. Although even even so, I think you're right. It's it, it would be hard to justify it to have it make total sense. Well, I think yeah. the plan was that actually they were going to move to Wall Street for the next season and then mm -hmm. Hollywood for another season and then Silicon Valley. Because ah. that's why they have that little tag on the end where Luke goes to Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But they also had some, some uh, I was going to say dangly bits, but that's not what I meant. <laughs> um, they, they had some, some storylines that just seemed to go nowhere. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, and that also felt like yeah. um, well, they, they were writing too fast. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think uh, they, I think they even were acknowledging that uh, with uh, the like the last two uh, previously on Brain Dead songs by Jonathan Colton at the beginning, um, where he, I mean, at least in one of them, he specifically says like, "Oh, we gotta like you know wrap things up here," and uh, it, sort of making some allusion that like a lot of crazy shit has gone on on the show that we gotta like try to <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. explain. Which Can I mean, also, although while while we're mentioning it, I mean, those songs, like, oh my god, yes, how genius of them! <laughs> yeah. That, like, it, those are some of the, the best parts of the show, but also such an, an annoying earworm. I have been, I have yeah. been humming that ditty forever. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, either really brilliant or kind of ironic. And ditto with the cars. My wife totally downloaded the best of the cars. Uh, after <laughs> um, and as far as I know, she hasn't been infected with space bugs. I mean, I've been checking, but um, actually, though, like as far as the songs go, like I mean, speaking of genius, like the one where he does the fake space bugs ad, like as if it was a prescription, oh, like oh, so great, like so brilliant. And then he does the one where uh, he's like, oh, I decided to watch another show because this was too depressing. So he does a Gunsmoke recap. Like, oh my god, like who would do that on a show? That's so great. Yeah, that was great. But I think yeah, that was part of what ultimately undermined the show somewhat is I love those Jonathan Colton openings because they gave you this idea that we're not taking ourselves too seriously. But the fact is, every TV show that does well right now, and I'm mostly thinking streaming stuff, not so much network stuff, you know, it's all starts out with some dead woman or raped woman or a child that's been abducted. Like yeah. people really like dark, serious, intense BS and something that doesn't take itself seriously, I feel like, is setting itself up to, you know, not succeed, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it didn't take itself too seriously sometimes, most of the time. And then every once in a while, I just found a scene that just, as I was saying, just the, the tone shift was 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 difficult. And sometimes I love that. Like, I love the little unexpected, subtle things. Like, one of my favorite sort of small moments was when Red scrapes the brains off his wall and puts it in Tupperware, <laughs> yeah. and then he leaves it with that classic office sticky note <laughs> that says, don't eat my lunch. <laughs> and that's just such a small thing, but it's great. But it's part of a broader scene that's already absurd on its face. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um I mean, another one that I thought was really a standout scene was the the awkward sex when uh, when Laurel gets the bugs in her ear. Mm -hmm. That that whole scene was just amazing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but it sort of yeah happened within the broader context of of some um, some pretty serious shit. And so you know that that's sometimes a little bit jarring. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I actually, I actually kind of love the tonal shifts. I mean, I, I think, uh, I think uh, a lot of creative people probably really appreciate that kind of thing. I don't know how well it goes over with sort of more mainstream audiences um, yeah. who aren't creators, but, um, uh, but, uh, but as far as uh, it being sort of not, uh, as far as it not taking itself too seriously, like what Grady was saying, it's like I, I think to some degree though, like that almost says like you, you just can't even do a political show because how the hell can you do a political show that isn't ridiculous because it's like so ridiculous yeah. right now it's like that's like the only response <laughs> like that would uh, like otherwise it's just it'd be so mind-numbingly depressing that like who would watch that um but on the other hand you're just saying like you know i mean it seems like uh, a lot of these shows that seem like they would be depressing like things about murder and death and all that uh but you know people eat it up yeah it's weird i don't know i feel like too if they took themselves really seriously they couldn't have done what i thought was really the thing that sold me on this show so hard which was they were able to make fun of everyone and it's mm -hmm. one of the few times i've seen 
people make fun of liberals as much as conservatives and have mm -hmm. it actually be funny. Mm -hmm. I thought so on the nose with their mockery of the left wing. And I've almost, I mean, South Park does it, but South Park goes way over the top and it gets, mm -hmm. I mean, quite literally cartoony. And this, I mean, it was everything from the character concepts and how they were driven to like background stuff to like how awful that Melanesian choir was to like the actual jokes. I mean, they really were able to nail that and they couldn't have done that and made fun of the right wing if they were being super ultra serious about this. Well, I mean, one of my highlights for the show was when the guy confronts Laurel on the steps of the building <laughs> talking about the public, all the public radio shows that are going to be cut. And I was, yeah. that, that was just absolutely hilarious. Yeah. It's a brilliant scene, and he's got his knife that he got from the pledge drive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's also, even just the characters, I mean, it's like, you know, I've never seen anyone really do this the way they did, but, you know, the really young, virile congressman with his mm -hmm. unbuttoned jacket and his hands on his hips who can't keep his dick in his pants, mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's such a left-wing, you know, uh, uh, stereotype. Um, and the same with Laurel, you know, that sort of wishy-washy, I don't know what I want from life. And one minute I want to make a documentary and the next I want to change the world. And maybe I just want a martini, you know, and and sort of the beardy schlub, like, you know, Napoleon complex short guy who speaks this big social justice message and then takes credit for everyone else's work. I mean, they were so great with that stuff. So, Aaron, were you did you want to say something? Well, I was just going to say um, one of the other things they, they I think they did a really good job about um, was some of the very and it's a tough type of humor to get right when they're scaring liberals. But the, the number of sort of Black Lives Matter and, and race related jokes that they made on both sides, but were, that were legitimately funny, um, I thought was really, really well done. Um, so, you know, you have the, the one where uh, they're in, I think it's Red's office. And as soon as Rochelle comes in, uh, whoever it is out of the blue has to say, you know, I think all lives matter. <laughs> and then you get the flip side where where they're in the the liberal space. And again, you've got the the two uh, African-American cast members. And the first thing out of the liberals mouth is, I think black lives totally matter or something like this. <laughs> like and, and in both cases, you have the, the two African-American characters being like, well, thanks, everyone, for your opinion on this <laughs> issue, just because, you know, you have two black people standing here. And that's that's I mean, it's a very sensitive topic and it's very hard. I think it's brave to make jokes out of it right now. I also just want to say that I really, really liked Gareth as a character in terms of <clears throat> making a conservative who was like a likable character. And yes. the part that really sold sold him for me is the part where, where, where I, and the whole episode with the Michael Moore thing, I just thought was absolutely hysterical. But just the part where he says, oh, come on, have you seen Fahrenheit 9-11? <laughs> I just totally, I just told, in that moment, I just totally loved him and I totally bought him as a likable conservative. Agreed. And he was brilliantly cast. I, I thought he was a very charismatic actor. He was, you know, he was credible as the romantic lead without being mm. over the top. Um, and yeah, he was, he did come across as a very believably moderate conservative. Mm -hmm. And actually also, uh, the other sort of a aspect of the show that we haven't really discussed too much is the, is the romance angle between Laurel and, um, and Gareth. And they were just so cute together. Like they were just yep. really, they were just like really interesting to watch on screen. Like it was, and yeah, like that, like I said, they, they did a really good job of making that, uh, you know, that relationship very believable, even though, like you know, on the surface, it doesn't make any sense. It seems like they would just be so divisive that they wouldn't be able to talk to each other. But uh, yeah, they did a really good job of making it work. 
And they had great chemistry. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, I found it confusing. One of the other sort of plot threads that I think they either didn't plan out very well or just completely changed their minds midstream was around Anthony. Because, uh -huh. you know, they start out with this, uh, this love triangle and you have these two guys that are very different, but they both seem like legitimate uh, romantic prospects and everything's going really well. And then all of a sudden, oops, he has bugs in his ear, which maybe they meant to do, but they did it so, so abruptly and at such an odd point in the story that it was like, what was the point of the love triangle at all? They didn't let it exist for long enough for it to count for anything. Yeah. Um, and so that whole thread, and then, and then he just drops off the map. Like he's mm. not, not even part of the equation anymore. So it felt like they didn't really know what to do with that character either. Right. I'm going to, and I'm t totally going to agree that my, my biggest criticism of this show is overall is that so many of the episodes worked as self-contained episodes, but felt like they had been written by different people mm. who had only a vague understanding of what the other people writing the episodes were doing in their episodes. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's totally how mm. it felt to me. Mm. That, you know, that th could th explain it. That things would happen. Like the thing that really jump that sticks in my mind is when Laurel finds out that her dad is infected with the bugs and has a whole conversation with him about it. And then that just gets totally dropped. It felt like for three episodes or something after that. And just, just there was a lot of things like Aaron saying that just did not seem to continue from episode to episode the way that you, you, you would expect them to and that I think they should have. Mm. Well, you know, yeah. on the same note, I mean, you've got this ending, and I actually appreciated what they did with the dad at the ending, but you've got this ending where whether the bugs leave or stay, they have eaten a large portion of a lot of people's <laughs> brain. Mm -hmm. Red's not going to wake up and say, what happened? He's going to wake up and, 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 you know, be in a coma. And I really do appreciate the fact that they give a brief acknowledgement to the fact that the dad now has severe brain damage and Parkinson's and is probably bedridden for the rest of his life and will die horribly. <laughs> you appreciated that? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it was just like there was such a rush to tie up all this stuff at the very mm. end. I'm glad they at least acknowledged the fact that the bugs have eaten all these people's brains. Like the yeah, bugs yeah. eat doesn't solve the problem. It leaves you with a lot of corpses. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll just say also about the, the ending. One other criticism I have is that I guess it's just part of the Hollywood formula that there has to be the, the moment of darkness where the characters all have a fight and they all give up and go off on their separate ways. And it could yeah. not have been less convincing in this oh show. I, I definitely agree that that mm -hmm. tough, that falling out seemed to come out of nowhere. The only thing more awkward and pasted on than that falling out was the weird product placement for Periscope in episode twelve. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That was pretty organic to me. But to, to go back to the ending situation, I mean, I think if um, if our theory is correct, and I, I strongly suspect that it is, um, that they knew they were canceled before they made that last, at least that last episode and perhaps longer, I think your dilemma as a storyteller is do you rush to try to package everything together in the limited time you have, um, which is maybe what they did and, and ended up with something of a, of a train wreck in that last episode, or do you do what... Uh, Deadwood did and just say, I'm just going to pretend that I'm not canceled and we're just going to run this wagon train off a cliff and too bad for you. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, I think that's a tough, that's a tough one as a storyteller. Well, I also think these days, now that there is a, a history of a show getting canceled on network or on a, a cable channel and getting picked up later exclusively for streaming and sort of restarted, you know, I think it makes people kind of want to wrap things up real quick, but leave their characters, mm. you know, not broken so they can, mm. if, in case that happens. Right. 
Yeah, the good news about the the prospects for Brain Dead having that happen to that show to this show um, is that like I haven't seen these actors like show up anywhere else. Like they didn't get like some gig on some new show or anything already. So um, you know, if if it was a thought in anyone's brain, then you know maybe uh, maybe it's still possible. Um, what, what I was going to say to go back to the characters for a second is I think they did leave their, their characters intact. Um, and, and I think they did a great job having a, a cast of characters with, with strong actors that could be picked up. And I, and I do have to give them a, a shout out for having such a legitimately diverse cast. Um, this could have easily been one of those shows where you've got the female lead and she's the only female, or you've got, you know, the, the, the token minority or whatever. And they didn't do that. They have a legitimately diverse cast, including age. Um, mm-hmm. which I thought was really great. My big complaint, and I should have looked up the name of the actress. I know her best as Mags from Justified. And she was in, um, I don't know if anybody saw that show, but she was in, um, I think just two episodes and she was the entomologist that they went yeah. to see. Mm. She was so great. It was such a waste. <laughs> but again, they had this really interesting character in one episode and by the next episode, they're like, and we're done with you. <laughs> yeah. On that note, you know, the, the supporting performances in this were absolutely great. She was fantastic. Um, Kurt Fuller, who plays the really solicitous FBI torturer who's going to waterboard Laurel. Mm. I thought, oh, he was great. <laughs> yeah. And then um, the dad, Zach Grenier, who I also thought was phenomenal. You know, there were other, I mean, everyone loves Gustav. I thought Tony Shalhoub was great, although that accent, I have no idea where that's <laughs> from. <laughs> Agreed. That was a bit weird. <laughs> But a lot of those really small performances were so so good. Mm-hmm. Even the, the special the special prosecutor, I thought that yeah. was fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, but on the special prosecutor, I thought for sure one question that was going to come up is the the degree of of verisimilitude in some of of the more sort of DC aspects of it. Um, and I'm sorry, but you cannot shoot someone <laughs> on the hill <laughs> and nobody yeah, right. notices. Right. It's just oh, ridiculous. That intern helped him get rid of the body. It was fine. Just try to picture the mechanics of this. Yeah, yeah, get yeah. Get the dead body out of Congress. Right. Well, and he <laughs> was going to do what he was going to do. He was going to kill Luke, and then he was going to kill Laurel. <laughs> you know, so he's like, ah, just that's the murder room. Because up to that point, uh, as a UN person and a person who's been to the Capitol Hill and, and all that kind of stuff, it was driving me bananas that everyone could just saunter in and saunter out. Nobody looks at their past. There's no pat uh-huh. down. There's no dogs. There's no metal detectors. I mean, good Lord, people. <laughs> Never. <laughs> yeah. Only only in that secret room that, that Red had in the basement. Yeah, that's exactly. that's the place that required any kind of key card access. So Gustav and Rochelle can just rock up at will. And, and that was the the thing that was bothering me the most. And then, and then they have red go and like blow someone away in his office and it's fine. And I was like, okay, clearly they're not even trying. Yeah. But I thought that was actually a, you know, they had that whole who and whom running joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they also had that Lana Laurel thing that winds up paying off at the end. But I thought the whole thing with people just walking into each other's doors was a running joke because there's only one locked door in the whole thing, which is SB 486. And everyone, and and towards the end, people keep commenting, like, I'm going to have to get a lock on that door. Oh, yeah, that's true. And so I thought it was maybe this running joke that people just, because who just wanders into a senator's (laughs) office like that? You're right. It's crazy. Well, but even just to get anywhere, I mean, you know, at the United Nations, in whether it's in Nairobi or Geneva or New York, you can't even get on the property, Mm -hmm. (laughs) let alone in the building, let alone in someone's office. 
you yeah. know, you have, there's a whole rigmarole that you have to go through when you work there, let alone <laughs> if you don't work there. But I, I, um, I oh, sorry. I, I wonder, Aaron, though, if they were to make that, that more realistic, would this whole thing just collapse? Right. Yeah. Because that's well, not a simple change. I mean, would, would that just make this whole wacky story impossible if it, if it were to be realistic in that way? It, it would make it more difficult. But I'm sorry, when you have a plot device, device mm-hmm. like brain eating insects, you can fix that really easily. Mm. I mean, it's 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 pretty it's pretty straightforward. But I don't want to give the the impression that I'm harping on it either. It's just um, you know there are sort of degrees of things that you can forgive in this. One of the ones you see uh, in in TV and the movies all the time, which is a, a New Yorker, uh, Dave, you'll know, is ridiculous. Is that people can just show up at your flat at at will without buzzing in first? <laughs> you see that in rom coms all the time, and mm-hmm. that's sort of that's forgivable. You don't want to. You don't want to have to go through the scene where they buzz in or whatever. Um, but I do think that all you have to do is tick your box once or twice at the beginning about how people are flouncing in and out. There's nothing you can't write your way around, especially in a speculative fiction piece. You're saying like the Capitol Hill guards all got half their brains eaten. Now they're yeah. not taking passes anymore or something like that. Or there's a secret entrance. I mean, there's nothing too ridiculous in mm. a show like this, right? Well, but I also think that's sort of it's interesting because. I totally agree with you. And I feel like, you know, it's a stupid game to play. But if you try to think about it from the producer's point of view, you know, you like start making this realistic and there's House of Cards, right? And they don't want that. So they want to pull it back and they want their characters face to face and in the same room as much as possible because that's dramatic and fast paced. They don't want to get hung up on establishing shots. And it's a really fast moving show. I mean, this show, there were no establishing shots almost. It was crazy. Towards the end, they would have someone in an office talking. He would turn to someone and you'd be in another office all of a sudden with someone else coming through the door. I mean, it got really disorienting. But that runs the risk of going too, you know, too lightweight. Like you're saying, Aaron, like he shoots a special prosecutor and what buries him in the shrubbery outside. <laughs> ever mentions a special prosecutor again and it's like and i feel like once it starts getting that lightweight you do run the risk of well nothing matters why should i be watching this nothing matters i completely agree it's it was it was a tough line and i felt like they stayed on the right side of it mostly but i see why it wouldn't have worked for a lot of people because they did jump over it a lot and you have to one of the things when you're writing when you're writing fantasy or sci-fi is it's the, the more you sort of demand a leap of faith in your central premise, the more important it is that you kind of make sure that you dot your I's and cross your T's mm-hmm. on some of these other details, because you're asking a lot in terms of suspension of disbelief right out of the gate. Wait, yeah. So you're, you're saying the, the head's exploding because of bugs farting. You're saying that requires a leap of faith to believe in? <laughs> it requires something of a leap of faith. Although this being said, did anyone actually Google screw worms? Did anyone do it? No. no. I did. <laughs> and? Um, I mean, I was perhaps, I mean, I don't, I don't recommend it if you're squeamish. Um, I, I, I am perhaps a little bit more inured to this just because of the, the life that I've led over the last few years. I mean, I've lived in places where I literally had to wash my hair with Mr. Clean to avoid precisely some kind par- parasites of that nature that would like burrow under your skin and lay eggs and things like yeah. that. So I'm not new to the concept, <laughs> mm-hmm. but this being said, um, particularly don't recommend clicking on images after you Google it. <laughs> uh. yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just watched an interview with the showrunners and they said they had a, an entomologist as a technical mm-hmm. advisor on the show. And they also had like Harry Reid's so. 
chief of staff or something. Um, so yeah, they did have you know they were trying really? to. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're always trying to get you know some of those things, yeah, some of those technical things, right? Well, on the other hand, they always have a they always have some sort of science advisor on uh, science fiction shows, like on the Sci Fi Channel, whether it's like in space or whatever, and then they just ignore half of what they say or most of what they say, you know, yeah. and, and they just do whatever they want anyway. So, um, one of I think one of the things that I think they could have uh, they could have done better. Sorry, not to harp on again the scene of the shooting of the special prosecutor, but to me that felt like a huge missed opportunity. It could have been so funny, the disposal of the body, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a scene with, you know, it's, I mean, it's easy enough to have a a Capitol police officer respond and then get turned away either because they're infected or through some ridiculous device. Um, But, but what I was going to say is actually, I don't know if anyone watches Veep or has watched Veep. Sure. Those guys do an amazing job of being super realistic and super completely outrageous at the same time. Hmm. And I don't know how they manage it. Um, and it's one that, and make of this what you will, um, I, I recognize my own professional life in to a disturbing degree. Hmm. And yet they manage to make it completely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I do think you can do that. You can have it somehow, you, you work within the absurdities uh, that actually exist. And there are plenty in, in D.C. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of other of other shows and like, you know, Grady mentioned House of Cards. Uh, uh, so when I described the show to Dave, uh, I got this from Wikipedia, but I described it as like West Wing meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which actually which feels like a pretty good comparison, except that now that you mentioned House of Cards, it's like, well, actually, it's more like House of Cards meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers because, you know, uh, both House of Cards and this have, uh, you know, uh, politicians murdering people and getting away with it very easily. Yeah. So, um you know, and, and I don't I'll, think House of Cards is all that realistic myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and I actually, one thing I appreciated they did realistically, and maybe this is where Harry Reid's guy came in, is um, compared to something like House of Cards, where the Capitol looks like this very grand and dramatic place, they really did a great job of making it look like a, a sort of chintzy second-rate set of offices. Yeah, <laughs> like, Absolutely. Like like Red's offices and Luke's offices, I would really not be surprised if they used the same set. I mean, they were just interchangeable, you know, modern day blah offices. And, you know, the fact that the senator has his own Tupperware, he has to put a note on and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, just that kind of stuff that's like, it's just an office, you know? And the Wi-Fi keeps going down. <laughs> no, that's that's absolutely great. And it, thanks for bringing it up because that was one of the things that did, did really ring true. I mean, the the one thing I have yet to see a depiction of the UN in the movies that I find even remotely resembles the mm. real thing. And the one that always makes me laugh is how grand the premises always look. And people are swiping digitized key cards and everything's shiny and new. And even after the renovations they just did, not so much. I, I've had so many days where I'm sitting in a room thinking, this is where the magic happens. It's <laughs> <laughs> in this room. Yeah, I know someone who's done a job up there, a catering kind of thing, and they said it is the most drek and ugly and shabby <laughs> building they've ever been inside of. <laughs> I'm actually curious, Grady, I mean, you're our ho- re- big horror expert here. What did you think of the horror elements in this show, and how, do they, how does this fit in with other horror and or horror humor things that you've seen? Well, you know, I was going to say, you know, one thing this reminds me a lot of is another really, really good uh, made-for-TV horror thing. I don't know if anyone ever saw uh, Joe Dante's Homecoming, which was oh, his yeah. episode, yeah, for Masters of Horror, mm-hmm. where... Um, that was based on a Dale Bailey short story. Was it really? I didn't yeah. know that. Oh, 
I mean, it was absolutely fabulous, but it's very much the same tone. I mean, it's 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 the dead bodies of veterans shipped back to the U.S. become reanimated zombies and and attack. You know, it becomes a liberal conservative kind of thing, and they wind up voting. But it's a very on the nose, very over the top, but very sort of like. Um, very now kind of thing. And it really fits the tone of this. Um, Joe Dante did another thing, another sort of sci-fi spec fic thing for, for HBO that had sort of the same tone of uh, the second civil war in terms of horror though, you know, you're really in Sam Raimi evil dead territory with this or Peter Jackson brain dead territory. Uh, it's a little cartoony. It's very stylized. It's very open over the top, but I have to say two things. One is that, for the amount of talking that went on in this show, they had some really great silent set pieces um, that were very impressionistic. The one where um, uh, 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 Gareth is in his room and he's freaking out because bugs might come through the wall. He's trying to go to sleep and he's just mm. focusing on the outlet. And also the the moment where he gets attacked on the uh, Capitol and stabbed. Um, as funny as it is, I mean, that's filmed really like a German impressionist sort of like silent horror thing with the lightning flashing and all and the opera on the soundtrack, although not silent. Um, and then the stuff with the dad, I keep going back to and with Luke because it was genuinely like emotionally painful and difficult. And I was, I was kind of glad they didn't shy away from that until the end when they just sort of rushed through things. Um, so I thought it worked, you know, if you're into horror, I think it works. I really do. There's enough there to chew on that isn't just jokes. Does anyone understand why the bugs didn't infect people like Gareth soon, sooner in the story? Like, was there any logic to that? Or was that just for the convenience of the plot? You know, I had to assume that that was because because there's a big moment where Red, where Tony Shalhoub is telling him how he's like a son to him and how he watches out for him and takes care of him. And I thought maybe it's like a Dracula Renfield thing, you mm. know, like is is. Red doesn't want to infect them because he has some affection for him and knows he needs a human who's loyal. Yeah, maybe. I, I actually didn't think about it until you asked the question, but but it's a good one. Um, it does seem like you would want to have everybody in your inner circle infected. Yeah. If, you, if you're a queen bug. Right. Well, it's, it seems like you would want to start at the top. You wouldn't want to infect the most powerful people and then work your way down mm -hmm. rather than like infecting Abby's friends. You know, like, yeah. like, it was just like random people who got infected when you would think that the chief of staff, you know, because he because because he goes on, of course, to cause problems for them and get into room SRB 54, whatever it was, they could have been avoided or infect. I mean, they, I guess they tried to infect Laurel. They could have tried harder or tried again or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I was just wondering if anyone <laughs> if there was any explanation for that. Or there was never one I saw. I just always assumed it was red sort of affection for him and knowing he's <clears throat> useful. But I have a question that's kind of related to that, which I couldn't quite figure out, was um, on the one hand, we're sort of given to understand that the bugs operate as a hive mind and that there's a grand plan. Um, and on the other hand, there's this rivalry between Red and Ella's bugs. And, yeah. and I found it difficult to reconcile those two um, because you didn't you didn't see wh where do the other bugs stand on this rivalry? Um, so, you know, you can believe that there are rivalries even within the invading power, but we don't really, I mean, what, what, what was the other people's take on that? I just seemed to me, I was just a bit confused about to what extent the bugs were operating with a coherent agenda, because that speaks to the point about who gets infected. If you're just, you know, uh, tackling the, the low hanging fruit and the closest human is, is as good as the next, 
then that would explain why some of these uh, um, worker bees, <laughs> to use um, a, a, the wrong analogy, but why, <laughs> why, some, why some of these, you know, ordinary pedestrians are getting infected. Um, but we don't really sort of see the rhyme or reason between, between who gets infected and who doesn't. I did not understand the rivalry between Red's bug and Ella's bug at all. I, I Did anyone, did they ever explain that? Because I couldn't, I didn't get it. No, I didn't get it. Yeah, no. Nope. And it yeah, wasn't I mean, totally clear to me either uh, how much of the human host's um, own thoughts and emotions played into it. That seemed to, to vary quite a bit between between infected people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, speaking of, um, like, who gets infected and why or, or how, um, I, I kind of wondered about the gr- the bigger picture, like, outside of what we see on the show. Like, um, like for instance, if, um, if Red uh, acts as, like, crazily partisan as he does when he's infected by the bugs, like, what, what does that mean for, like, Donald Trump? Is he just, like, he's, like, entirely made of bugs, like Candyman or something? Like, he's just, like, it's, like, bugs all the way down? Like, you know what I mean? It's, like, I, I kind of wonder about that, <laughs> you know, like. I want to know, I want to know like what the bug situation is for the rest of the people that we don't see on the show. You know, good people, smart people have told me that Donald Trump is made entirely of bugs. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's true, but people are saying it. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of people, a well, lot of good people. Well, well but I, I think that, I think, I guess that's a, another problem with this show and it's not their fault, but that I feel like this show was written to unfold against the backdrop of a, um, you know, Barack Obama versus John McCain election or a Barack Obama versus Mitt Romney election. Whereas just the crazy, like sheer craziness and outlandishness of this election that it actually ended up unfolding against undermines yeah. their, um, their theme to some extent. Cause the theme is supposed to be kind of that, Oh, you know, partisanship is an issue and there's wackos on both sides and people need to just relax a little bit and compromise a little more. And I just don't think that that theme worked the way it needed to against just the absolute batshit insanity that has been unfolding. Well, it does resonate in a way that uh, in the sense that that it ex- it helps me feel it, it kind of makes you feel better about politics. It's like, well, like if if uh, if all the politicians out there that we don't agree with actually did have their brains uh, taken over by these alien bugs, then that would explain how come I can't understand their policies at all. Like I can't understand that they're devoting their lives to doing all of these things that I, you know, vehemently disagree with. Um, so in, in that sense, I feel like it kind of resonates, but yeah, no, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. They, they didn't really anticipate this. And also I think they probably also thought once um, the, the candidates were selected, I think they probably were assuming Hillary was going to win too. Um, and so that we weren't going to end up in this dark, <laughs> this dark timeline that we're in now. But I think that, I mean, I think that's kind of, possibly uh, the biggest explanation for for why they didn't succeed. And I don't know, I had a slightly different take on it. I think it was precisely geared towards this hyper-partisan time. Um, I think that the the sort of unspoken assumption there was that indeed Donald Trump and, and everybody else and Rachel Maddow and all these people have bugs in their brains and that's why they're so hyper-partisan. Um, and, and so I think that could have worked, but I think that, and and the time slot issue definitely didn't help. The, the problem I, for a lot of people probably was that the truth was more ridiculous than fiction. And to the extent that you had the emotional energy to watch this garbage fire, um, this dumpster fire, you, you, were, you were watching the real thing. 
And maybe that didn't leave everybody in in the, the mm-hmm. right emotional state to watch a satire of it that was frankly not that much more ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, the bug part, yes. But in terms of the behavior of the politicians, it was maybe it just there was no huge difference between how ridiculous these people were behaving and the way people are actually behaving in the political mm-hmm. space right now. Well, right. Well, Aaron, you said earlier that you thought that this pulled its satirical punches to a degree. And I agree with that. And I think that, I mean, I admired that they tried to make it even-handed, but I really wonder what would have happened if they had tried, if they had just like picked a side a little bit more. And I would actually even be curious to see like the conservative um, brain dead and the liberal brain dead, where they just, mm-hmm. you know, they each pick a side and try to persuade you that the other side is the one whose brains are uh, infested with uh, <laughs> space bugs. And I, I, don't know, I just think that might be interesting rather than trying to play it so down the middle and so safe. Sort of to what Aaron was saying a second ago, one of the things maybe, and kind of what you were saying, Dave, it may not be that they pulled their punches, but one thing that really bugged me, no pun intended, (laughs) and Dave, I actually thought you were going to have a real problem with this, is that the solution to fighting the bugs is that this left brain, right brain BS that's BS anyways, but then you just have to feel emotions a lot harder. And that, that makes no sense. Yeah, it's it's really dumb. And I kind of wonder if, you know, to me, if this was more like Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the one from the 70s, where there is no way to fight back. They're just going to take over everything because they're more extreme than you. If it might have seemed like a more even-handed and interesting show than one that says, oh, and wait, we've got this silver bullet. You just have to like feel things really deeply. Because mm-hmm. compared to what you're looking at on TV screens in real life, that just seems childish and ridiculous. And it also seems to be completely the opposite of what the message was. It, I right. mean, to me, that to the extent that that it made any sense at all that making stimulating one side of the brain physically pushes something out, um, you would have thought... Because I thought that the thing that united the the people whose heads exploded was that maybe they were a little bit smarter, and so they were fighting the bugs. Um, and oh. if you were if you were you know a real critical thinker, the bugs couldn't take you over, and so they were for, forced to eat so much of your brain that your head exploded. That was my working theory. Mm. And then they get into this thing about which side of the brain to appeal to. And surely, if your point is that. Uh, you're not employing your critical thinking skills. You're not employing your logical thinking. This is all very tribal and very instinctual and very ideological. Then stimulating that side of the brain would surely make it worse, would it not? It, it just seemed a bit. There was seemed to be a disconnect there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I think that uh, they totally should have done that, Aaron. I think that's. I, I wish we could have Dr. Ben Carson on to explain to us <laughs> the inner workings of the brain. Uh, he is the, the first one who got his brain eaten. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I still have, a, anyways, I was, never mind. <laughs> so many well, neurons. Well, but no, but I mean, Grady, I, I, I didn't like the fact that all they had to do to win was kill the queen because that's that's such a cliche. And the whole thing with shame, I, I, I'm, I'm honestly so confused and baffled by it that I, I my, uh, my bafflement <laughs> is overwhelming my, uh, you know, dislike of it um, mm-hmm. that I don't even, I don't even know what to say because I found it so inexplicable. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I was, I, I was surprised you weren't banging on your laptop, and that was the thing you led off with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that. I think that's kind of what I meant about some of the some of the storytelling choices that seemed a little bit hasty, and then yeah. they had to sort of uh, go through these logical contortions. 
to explain why they made some of those choices. Um, and I mean, I've often thought that I would like to write for television, but uh, in another way, I would not like to write for television because one of the things that you can always do when you're writing a novel is once you have that epiphany, you can you can go back and stitch it up early um, and and make it make sense. You can change the things um, earlier on that would sort of contradict the new direction that you would like to take. So if you decide you want Gustav to work for the NSA, you can go back to those early chapters and make it mm-hmm. make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they couldn't. I mean, I agree with you, Grady, that the the thing was seemed to me very even-handed throughout, but I thought that the la- the last moment where Red, now bereft of half of his brain, is talking about how he's not a scientist and so he can't say whether global warming is a, a Chinese hoax or not. Um, yeah. I felt like that was them sort of showing their cards. And that was, I mean, oh. I, I feel like I feel like they tried to play it very even, but I have no doubt that the people were overwhelmingly liberal writing this show. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, oh, that I, came yeah. through pretty clearly to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and they soft pedaled some of the some of the liberal bashing. I mean, mm-hmm. the sort of the baby seals thing is funny, but it's not terribly credible as one of the more um, outlandish things that a that a super hyper left winger person. Although the harping on Finland was great, yes. because <laughs> oh yeah, that that resonates with my Facebook feed big time. <laughs> well, the harping on Finland, I thought the constant reference to the one percent is this solution for everything mm-hmm. was so so great and also the total overuse of the word fascist i mean it was just like <laughs> i felt like i was reading like my friend's facebook feeds <laughs> yeah but you know yeah. this, up this sort of weird thing though because we all like the show i mean i i think that's you know we're, we're spending time on a sunday afternoon you know uh talking about it we all like it but where we wound up being is frustrated that it wasn't better mm-hmm. and I and and frustrated that it seems to pale in comparison to reality. And I kind of wonder, I mean, God, this is such a boring op-ed headline. So just tell me to screw off. But, you know, it kind of opens the topic of is there any kind of political satire or comedy that even works right now? I think Veep does. Um, I think I think Veep works because um, because Veep leaves its absurdity at the level of the characters. If you see what I mean, it's mm-hmm. not pushing a particular ideology. Um, it, it's or or worldview, which is one of the things that um, typically, if for satire to truly be cutting, it kind of has to strike a position, right? Um, and then just go to town on on the other position. Um, but but so so I don't know if, if Veep is satire so much as just ab- absurdist, but but it's absurdity is is at the a very a very human level. It's w- with individual characters. Um, and I think that's what makes it work is that it's not sort of attacking from an ideological point of view. It's just saying these people who are behaving in these ridiculous self-interested ways, you've got the people who are ridiculously self-interested, you've got the people who are just way over promoted and not good at their jobs they've got you've got these people who have no social skills whatsoever and that kind of resonates for everybody because we have these people in our office space even if they're not in the white house hmm. i mean i haven't seen veep so i can't comment on that but you know i interviewed christopher buckley last year who's one of the foremost satirists of contemporary politics and he said that basically he was getting out of satire out of hmm. contemporary he, he, he wrote a historical novel but he said he, you know i'm getting out of contemporary satire because I, I can't compete with the level of absurdity of the you know just the daily news like how do you even compete with that and i so i yeah. think Grady, there is something to that you know 
Yeah. Well, you look at like South Park. I mean, South Park does it and they do a very good job of making fun of liberals and conservatives, but they have to go so far over the top to do it that I think they make themselves easy to dismiss. And yet I'm sometimes astounded and I can't think of a good example, but South, South Park will do something and two years later, something in, in reality catches up with it. <laughs> it's, I mean, maybe it's just, you know, there, there that, is nothing to satirize right now. That happens on The Simpsons too, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. And I mean, The Simpsons has been on since the 90s. And so they've got a little bit more scope for, for history <laughs> catching up to them. Um, but, you know, obviously President Donald Trump being the most famous example of The Simpsons um, completely unwittingly getting something right. I, I think there are a lot of examples of that in, in The Simpsons where when you watched it, it seemed ridiculous. And then a few years later, you're like, oh, dear God, <laughs> isn't this a Simpsons episode? I'm actually I'm actually curious, Aaron, given your background in international affairs and things, what did you think of the really serious um, issues that the show touched on in terms of um, fake wars and torturing suspects and Syrian refugees and stuff like that? I mean... I think they did a good job of being timely, um, but I think this is where, too, I, I felt like maybe they, they pulled a, a few of their punches just because um, they could have given so, so much more. And, and maybe this is because the characters were infected with space bugs. And so their motivations for instrumentalizing the war, for, for using the war to their own political purposes, um, because their motivations were different. And so that's why it didn't it didn't quite hit hit home. But I mean, you, you don't really need to to fictionalize the extent to which some of these things are manipulated for populist purposes. And, um, and I just, yeah, I just kind of wish that they had gone a little bit further with some of that. Like, you didn't really, I didn't really feel I understood why Red wanted to go on the warpath. This whole sort of, um, to distract the populist thing just didn't go far enough for me. If that makes sense. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I felt like we never really knew. I mean, we never really knew what the aliens' motivation was, you know, which I think kept them from going further. I mean, one minute they're making internment camps, the next minute they're greenhouses. They took over America. Are they taking over other countries? Like, it was, the the bugs were very vague in terms of what they wanted. And yeah. I think that, that resulted in what you're talking about, which is this feeling that they're sort of pulling their punches. Yeah, it's just a little bit vague. And, and you know, it. I think it could have also been a phenomenon where, again, they, they changed their minds. Like, the, I had forgotten about the internment camps, but, that, but that's a good point. Like, did they maybe change their minds? Yeah. And they originally were going to be mm -hmm. internment camps, and then they were like, actually, no, it's going to be greenhouses for more bug infection. Yeah, I thought that was just a red herring that the that the you know the the character the main characters thought they discovered internment camps, but it turned out they were actually just the greenhouses because they hadn't really figured out the entire plan. Um, but as far as the bugs' motivations go, I, I think that um, maybe uh, it's not that it wasn't as well defined; it's just that it was kind of a boring uh, motivation in the sense that I think that like literally what the, what I think what we can glean from the show is that their only motivation was to come here and survive that they needed a, they needed to manipulate us in order to allow themselves to thrive um and uh you know which is kind of ridiculous it's like oh well, like, like all the planets in the in the galaxy or whatever they're, they're able to come here but they have to come here they, they have well, to come here and, so, so and, and I have this weird earth. maybe this is a bug in my head John but I have this weird idea that what was going on in the show was that 
They had come here to sow discord among humans to prevent us from ever getting off the planet and causing problems mm. for the bugs. Was that oh, in the that show, or did I just did I just dream that? You just made that up, but that's yeah. great. <laughs> I mean, that well, would make I, sense. I mean, that's that's kind of a that's kind of a, a thing that we've seen in science fiction before, where you know you try to hamper hamper progress off of Earth to to protect the rest of the galaxy. I mean, I think that what 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 I sort of took from it um, to to go back to the question about the Syrian wars, I I, I guess um, it, it's true to life in the sense that I think it was meant to be. This is a hand wavy thing. Um, so that you're looking away while I while I slowly take over the country, and so it was the the end. Um, the the means to the end. Um, the means was the Syrian war, and the end was to infect more people more quickly, so that by the time you know signs and symptoms that would have otherwise been noticed were not because we were too busy paying attention to the Syrian war. I think that's kind of what they were going for there, but but yeah, the sort of infecting everyone um and it's interesting because they had those couple of scenes between laurel and her dad where they seemed to try to explain where the bugs were coming from and maybe even make it sound sympathetic but they never quite got there they never quite explained it all the way right so i think this is maybe one of the maybe the central problem with this show i don't know but that and maybe this is just our bias as science fiction fans but it seems like the whole sort of overarching plot is w- let's figure out this mystery involving with what these bugs are doing and then the show doesn't know what the bugs are doing and so then it just kind of like kind of just you know so you start off like the the structure we're gonna, we're gonna solve this mystery and then it kind of doesn't know where to go because there's no mystery to be solved yeah i mean you know it's it's funny like they had an entomologist consulting. They had Harry Reid's chief of staff, former chief of staff. They maybe should have had like a, a hard science fiction writer <laughs> who would have just <laughs> burrowed down on these bugs. Like, you know, even the basic stuff, like the bugs eat brains. Do they eat the brains for a food source? At which point does someone just finally keel over when they're full? Or are they eating just enough to control the person? Like, it, it was, like you said, David, so vague on what do the bugs want and how do they want to get it that yeah this mystery has a big hollow at its heart well i mean as far as as far as the eating of the brains goes like i think from what i remember from how it's portrayed on the show it's like they're not really eating them for food or anything it's like they they get the, they're they're trying to get that that half of the brain out of the head and then the bugs sort of swarm together to form the rest of that half of the brain or something and that's how they control them or something like or at least they're right. certainly living in the head because we see someone's like half of someone's brain ooze out of their ear at some point right right yeah yeah um but i think there's a lot of commonalities to the things that we're saying, which makes me, I almost wonder whether because it felt so timely, maybe it was rushed into production. Um, I mean, I have absolutely no basis for saying that, but just that it, it felt like there were so many promising little tributaries and pathways that they didn't really get down. And and if they had spent a little bit more time crafting the story and and uh, I can't remember who said it earlier about the frustration. Was it was it you, Grady? Somebody said something about the frustration um, that that we feel because it was almost mm-hmm. so great. So we still enjoyed it. It was still really good, but it it fell short of maybe the promise of what it could have been. And that was kind of my overall thing. I liked it. I binge watched it in a in a very short period of time, um, which you don't do with the show. You're not enjoying. Mm-hmm. Um, I completely devoured it, but. 
I was left wanting more. I was, I, I was left feeling like we didn't quite max out on all of the potential that it had in so many ways. That's how I feel about the Democratic Party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, say, I mean, you know, I love this show. I actually went back to watch a few episodes this week to refresh myself, and I wound up watching way more than I planned <laughs> on. But I think, you know, we're all fans, and we come out of the world of fans. And I think one of the issues is, what we, we one of our hallmarks is we attack what we love. Like a sign that <laughs> we really like something is we sit and we pick nits over it. Right, but I feel like, I mean, overall, I, I really enjoyed the show. I mean, obviously, there were some things I would change about it. But I feel like if even if all the things that I wanted changed were changed to perfectly suit me, this still would have been canceled after one season. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, could that be. it was just sort of doomed in the conception, which I find really sad. But because this is exactly I was joking to my girlfriend. It's like, oh, someone made a show just for me. It's like equal parts contemporary politics and science fiction, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and I just feel like. I don't I don't know that there's a audience right now for for a show like this. But they yeah, were mean, going up against the biggest the biggest mesmerizing car crash in television <laughs> history arguably, right? I mean that was that was their c- competitor. It wasn't whoever else was in the time slot. It wasn't, you know, Jeopardy or <laughs> I don't know what. They were competing with the the reality show spectacle mm-hmm. of the real thing and it I I just don't think anybody could compete with that. Right. You probably mentioned this, Aaron, but they literally got preempted for the Republican National <laughs> Convention. Right. I mean, yeah, this is not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what you were saying, though, Dave, uh, I, I, I I've encountered that kind of thing before where like I, I, I like encounter a piece of entertainment and I'm like, this is like so this is like so good. Like, I don't understand how anyone uh, actually put money behind it, thinking that it was gonna ach- it was gonna achieve like mass acceptance. It was like because it's, it's like so it seems so ideally suited for me, and it, but it's so good and so interesting and so different than anything else that I've seen that it doesn't make sense that it, it got enough money to actually even exist in the first place. Um, and and I always hope that when you encounter things like that, that 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 will be proven wrong, and that you know people will that it will become popular. Like I mean, I can think of cases where it worked and I'm like this is so good I don't understand how it's popular it's like it's it does because it seems like most of what's really popular just receives a certain level of um like you know a, a certain level mediocrity. of uh, basic success but is is ultimately like mostly mediocre you know um so yeah I mean it's disappointing that 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 something like this couldn't have found a wider audience but like I mean uh yeah I think you're I think what you're saying is right that even if even if they really had like shaved away all of the missteps, um, it probably still would have ended up in the same result. Hmm. It's so weird to me that, you know, just sort of on a bigger level, a show about people getting murdered on a regular basis, like Law and Order, can be like a super, oh yeah, of course, that makes a lot of sense. Everyone wants to watch that. People getting, hey, this is so popular. Let's spin off a sequel just about people who are getting sex murdered. Let's just do that too. And yet a show about politics, ooh, that's risky. I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's so weird that politics really is, um, you know, this, this, this thing that doesn't seem to suit entertainment. Mm. I mean, well, again, I mean, the West Wing was on for seven seasons. I was going to say, and yet how do you explain the West Wing? And, and for, for right. somebody who's, who's a policy nerd um, and a politics nerd, I mean, the West Wing is catnip. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't shy away from that stuff. They had entire episodes about super nerdy stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, yeah. And they they really timely discussions. And But I think you you just can't go halfies. 
you yeah. have to you, you have to either hit that spot or not aim for that spot. And I and I think that that was a bit where yeah, where it goes back to what I was saying before about where I think it took them a little bit to to figure out what exactly they were aiming for and that um the fact that they didn't do that I think earlier in the first couple of episodes maybe didn't play to their advantage. Well, in the West Wing is a show, like I was saying earlier, that picked a side, right? That wasn't like, oh, mm-hmm. conservatives and liberals are the same, basically. You know, that was a show right. like, that's the li- that's the liberal White House show, right? And yeah. that's what made it great, in my mind. Yeah. Well, you know what's funny is that I was thinking about, um, I thought about, like, this kind of partisan uh, entertainment before, like, in terms of, like, I, I originally started thinking about it, like, with Stephen Colbert, for instance, when he had his uh, show on Comedy Central, the Colbert, you know, when he had the Colbert Report, um, I, w- I was wondering, like, why isn't there a, um, a conservative version of that, where, like, they're making fun of, like, liberal <laughs> uh, viewpoints, and it's like, I, I think, I, I think largely, um, it, it's like, well, A, it's harder to make fun uh, it's harder to make that work, I think. But um, also, like in the case of the West Wing, I'm I'm kind of astounded that that it actually was successful enough, given that it had uh, liberals as the um, as the good guys in the show. It's like it was a liberal show, um, because I think like liberals will watch something that is that that makes fun of liberals because we hate ourselves. But Republicans <laughs> just hate liberals. So if you made a show about um, a Republican uh, administration that was very down on liberals. Liberals would watch it because we hate ourselves, and then Republicans would watch it because they also hate Democrats. So, you know, it's kind of a win-win situation for you know. I mean, if anybody wants to give me a pile of money, I'll, I'll, help, <laughs> I'll help you put it out. So, so what's interesting though is what you're saying is that politics weren't the cardinal sin here. It was like an uncertain tone. It was that the tone shifted too much and wasn't enough. It wasn't sure enough of itself. I think, I mean, I felt, I felt that it wasn't sure enough of what it was trying to do. And it, and it did, it did kind of fall in a crack in between a couple of different things. Like I said, I think, um, to be, to be genuinely biting satire, you do kind of have to pick a side. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if you want to get into politics, then get into politics, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to sort of the, the stuff that happens in the back room while the politics is going on. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think if you if you want to be, you know, I would have really loved it if um, I mean, they could have gone a much darker direction, too. Um, I would have really loved it if the central conceit um, of, of brain eating bugs was almost the only like everything else was eerily real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but but that's just me. I, I can also see where some of the, the the wackier elements super appeal as well. But it's yeah, it it's that kind of um, vacillating between mm-hmm. those, um, which I think it stopped doing uh, toward the, the middle of the show. I think it really did sort of find its feet in terms of a tone, or maybe I just got used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that too, but it actually- just felt a little bit more confident mm-hmm. in the second half. You know, I mean, that would be really interesting, actually, what you were describing. Like, if, if the show did take itself more seriously and had the, the brain bugs as the only uh, unusual thing where, like, where, you know, so you sort of have it more like the West Wing meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers, like, more closely, where it's like, you know, 
as you're watching the show, you don't know who who's infected and who's not. You can suspect it based on their behavior because then it's like it's more like it's more like looking at politics in real life where you're like, oh, my God, like, I don't know. Like, this is such a crazy idea that they're proposing right now. And it's like, well, yeah. you would think like, oh, well, they must be infected by brain bugs. In the like, real world, yeah. you don't have that as a as a explanation for this this sort of uh, line of thinking. But on the show, it's like it could be an interesting puzzle to try to figure out like, oh, well, is that person or is that person? I mean, I don't know how you'd make that work narratively, but um, that would be kind of interesting. It would be interesting. And I mean, it, as you say, there are things that happen in real life that leave us grasping. I mean, the one for me right now, just very biased, is there's this, um, you know, Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham are putting forward this bill to defund the entire United Nations system. Mm. And the reason they're doing this is because, and I'm putting this in air quotes, even though you can't see, the UN passed a resolution that they don't like on Israel. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know either of these gentlemen, uh, their their political views and their social views are not views that I share, but I don't know that I've ever been struck uh, by by gross stupidity in either of them. And yet this bill is either completely cynical, as in they know that they're completely what, what they're doing has no resemblance to uh, the the resolution on Israel. Or they're just really, really dumb and they have no idea how the United Nations works. One of these two things must be true. And yet they don't strike me as as necessarily completely vacuous. I mean, if Sarah Palin did this, I wouldn't be surprised. Or Donald Trump would be like, oh, oh, dear, it's so sad. They have no idea how the United Nations works. But I don't think that's the case. And so it just really leaves you scratching your head. Are our leaders truly that cynical? Well, let me say, because I, I watched, I said, I mentioned I watched an interview with the showrunners, and it, it sort of came up in this that they have the opposite philosophy as Veep, as the writers of Veep do, and where the peop, the writers of Braindead feel like corruption isn't the problem, purity is the problem, whereas they were saying that Veep is the opposite. I'm more with Veep, although totally. I haven't seen the show, in that, you know, uh, and and I think that's one of my problems with this show, I guess, another one, is that I feel like it doesn't really address the role of corruption in the dysfunction of government. And it makes it seem as if people's, um, you know, deeply held political views are the problem, whereas really the problem is cor- is money causing... Corruption and ineptitude. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, I don't know. Yeah. I think that speaks to what you were saying. I, I, I think that you you can't have a political satire of Washington that that doesn't acknowledge how many of the problems come out of people spending money to influence what happens there. Well, you know, it's interesting because one of the problems we have with the show is I think maybe one of the problems with the uh, bill that you're talking about, Aaron, with uh, Lindsey Graham and Ted. Is it Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz. Yeah is that I think those guys are playing by a rule book that actually has rules. And the rule was, we can put forward these very ideologically extreme bills, and then the other side will slap them down. And we can go on record as having opposed something or wanted to sanction something that plays well to our voters back in our home states. And we know there's no danger of this getting through. And, you know, Politics in the U.S. has always had these rules, you know, these these checks and balances, a lot of them unofficial. Pork was a great one until we got rid of it. You know, pork was a really good way of getting things through. You gave a little something over here. You got a lot of something over there. And what we've discovered is that there are no rules anymore. 
Like someone can be elected president and say things that would have been completely disqualifying just from a sort of a, a civil discourse point of view 10 years ago, completely disqualifying. There don't seem to be any more rules. And it's kind of crazy. And it's one of the problems we have with this show. This show had no rules. And it's one of the reasons I think we all feel like it was sort of like ultimately didn't achieve its full potential is that limitations like how passes work on Capitol Hill or how politics actually work or how insects eating people's brains actually work or how plots and emotional payoffs actually work. <laughs> Those limitations make a show richer and, and fulfill its potential the way, you know, the rules that we're suddenly seeing a lack of made politics work uh, or seemingly work better um, or at least flow better. I don't know. Maybe I, I, think, I think that's brilliant. Great. No, I, I totally agree with that. I do. Before we run out of time, I also just want to quickly mention the crazy um, titles of the episodes of this show. Yes. And, <laughs> and so I, I just have two I want to read. So one, one of the episodes is called Six Points on the New Congressional Budget, The False Dichotomy of Austerity versus Expansionary Policies. <laughs> and another of the episodes is called Notes Toward a Post-Reagan Theory of Party Alliance, Tribalism, and Loyalty, Past as Prologue. <laughs> and I feel like, Rady, you were saying that, you know, could, could politics just not make a good or m make a popular show? And I feel like this is um, exactly demonstrating why this show has difficulty reaching a wide audience, because I feel like most people would just look at those titles and their <laughs> eyes would glaze over. And I feel like maybe... If this show, like we're saying, I don't think this show ever had any hope whatsoever of having of having mass appeal. And I wonder if they had just gone 100% in the direction that these um, titles suggest in the actual episodes themselves, if this show could have reached some really, really niche audience that nevertheless would have been a really, really committed niche audience. Yeah. That's always a tough one. And, you know, I've had so, you know, when I started writing books, of course, the classic thing that my coworkers would ask me is, when are you writing a book about the UN? Mm. And I, my answer is always uh, never. Um, but if, if I were to do that, um, I mean, I would love, I would love if I just had, you know, all the freedom in the world, creative freedom to, to write something, a dark satire about the UN. But the trouble with it is that it would be so completely cluttered with inside jokes <laughs> that would it, would it appeal? And the more, the more brilliant it is, the more inside the jokes are, the more subtle they are. And so you get into this, do you need, do you get this niche audience that's really committed that carries you through, or do you have to try to have wider appeal and then just miss all the marks? Oh, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, speaking of those episode titles that reminded me, like how great was that character that was like the budget whisperer, you know, the yeah, guy who like combs through the budget and he finds <laughs> all the bizarre stuff that they hid in there. But like, that was like so infuriating to me, like to, to just see that like portrayed on television. I mean, I guess like I sort of knew that like that kind of BS went on, but I mean, to like watch it actually happen where like they, they don't provide a digital version of a bill. They just, or of a budget like that. They just print these gigantic freaking tomes that like is impossible to review and so you need someone who's like this like um uh savant at at, at uh studying budgets and finding all the the stuff that's hidden in there i mean I, I just love that character and and but at the same time the whole thing was like infuriating to me that that it might actually happen in real life that way the labyrinth of footnotes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh my god that amazing. was amazing so yes but you know just to what you were saying a second ago aaron i actually think this this conversation you're sort of getting an answer maybe i don't know a bad one but like 
the things that frustrate us in this show are when it doesn't get insider enough. Like yeah. even without knowing how politics works, we have a feel for certain things that don't feel true. Like even me, who's never set foot in the Capitol, knows that you got to have some kind of pass system to get through those doors. <laughs> um, and it's like the more the show shied away from like, I mean, look at Tom Clancy books. You can't get more insider than <laughs> That's that. That's true, know? yeah. You know, and people love that. And I feel like maybe the more specific you are, the more appeal it has to a broad group. People want to know how stuff works. All right. So I guess just the last thing I want to bring up, Grady, is that your book Horror Store is currently being adapted into a TV show that I would imagine is kind of a comedy slash horror slash satire. And I'm just wondering yeah. what you uh, what you do, do you see it sort of in the vein of brain dead or do you think it's going to be much different or what do you think that this show kind of says about the potential for this sort of thing i would love it if it was in the vein of brain dead right now i mean i've seen a script it seems to be going somewhere but i they've told me now i can't talk about it um but i'm like the the, the lowest of the low in this process like if there was a meeting for everyone about this tv show i'm the guy they'd send to get the coffee like no one cares <laughs> about the original writer i'm more a nuisance than anything um they sent me one script about eight months ago that they were thinking of shooting for the pilot and it was so broad and so cartoony and like i mean look i wrote a book about a haunted ikea who am i to talk about broad and cartoony but like <laughs> You know, I spent a lot of time in Ikea's and I interviewed a ton of employees and all this stuff because I felt kind of like Aaron's saying, you got to get those details right or people just smell it's not right. And this was clearly written by someone, you know, who who didn't feel that way. Um, and and I've heard since then they've rewritten it a few times. They're doing research and all this. And who knows? I mean, I feel like Brain Dead's a really good model for a show, you know, a horror sort of network show it's gory but not too gory it sort of hits down the middle but maybe the middle's not the place to be anymore i mean i loved brain dead for all the problems i have with it um i would love an adaptation to feel like this and to be this good because at the end of the day brain dead's really well done i mean the acting was great um it was well written like there were problems we all have but like it was well done and I feel like that's sort of like the gold, the gold bar, the shower. I don't know the whatever. <laughs> you had to go there. <laughs> but but I but so you know. But at the same time, it was also a big flop. So I don't even know. You know what yeah, I mean? It, I might, it to, might be a cautionary tale. <laughs> yeah, I, I basically just try to stay out of the way because if it does really well, people be like, oh, and I'll say, yeah, I had a lot to do with that. And if it does terribly, I'll be like, oh, I know. Wow, those guys really <laughs> wrecked it. Grady, I haven't read your book, but can I ask a question? I think it's an, everyone's going to want to know this. Yeah. Are, are Alan wrenches involved in any murders at all? Oh, is death not, by Alan wrench a part of this? Not, uh, not a murder, but at IKEA they all call those the um, God. I can't remember what, but a couple of people they call those the magic tools, the magic and wonderful tool because they have better ones than you do at IKEA. The employees <laughs> have a better Alan wrench. And one does play a pivotal role in the climax. Excellent. <laughs> Is there a minotaur at the center of the Ikea labyrinth? <laughs> God, I so wish, right? His horn's in the shape of an Allen wrench. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Missed opportunity. Put it all together. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, any, any, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap this up? 
I just want to say one thing, and I said it briefly before, and I'm going to say it briefly again, but I want to have said it briefly twice, <laughs> is that uh, the guy who plays Goose, he has a country singer name, like Johnny Ray Gill or something. Yeah. But the guy who plays Gustav, Gustav was phenomenal. He got a little more normal as the episodes progressed, but the Gustav from the first six or seven episodes, man, I'd watch, I'd watch 10 seasons of anything about him. <laughs> one of the best characters I've seen on TV in a long time. But a big part of why he worked, I think, is what a great straight man Rochelle was. Yeah. She was great. I, I think you need that foil. Yeah, I entirely agree. The two of them, I wish they would like I wish they would do like a thin man reboot with the two of them. <laughs> I hope it comes through. You know, we have as John was saying, we have picked some nits. Um, as you do when you're discussing something, um, I mean, I, I, I trust our love and affection shines through it all. Yeah, and I would just say, I mean, if anybody's uh, listened to this whole episode and you're still not sure whether or not to check it out, I mean, yeah, definitely do check it out. I mean, it's, 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 if you're a science fiction fan and you're a fan of, you know, what we all talk about in Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, I mean, I think you definitely, uh, it's definitely worth trying it. Um, and if you have Amazon Prime, you can, it's just part of the subscription, so it's, it's free to, to watch. So, um, can't hurt. Um, and it's, it's worth watching for the Jonathan Colton songs alone, I swear. Yeah. And remarkably, after talking about this for an hour and a half, I don't know that we have spoiled it all that much. <laughs> That's no. true. Yeah, I, I think I think there's still plenty to watch and discover, uh, uh, even even after we've spent all this time dissecting it. Like a bug. <laughs> Rimshot. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Grady Hendricks, and Aaron Lindsay. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. And that was our panel. So, a big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Grady Hendricks, and Aaron Lindsay for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So, if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Rural Lucian, who just became PayPal patron number 149. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Adam Tickets for sponsoring today's show. Adam Tickets is a free app that makes it easy to plan movie outings right on your phone. You select the movies you'd like to see, select a range of possible times, and then pick which friends you'd like to invite, with all your friends' info imported automatically from your contacts. Your friends receive alerts which let them vote on which movie they want to see and when, and then you decide what the final plan will be, and you can easily buy tickets for yourself and anyone else you choose. Last week I used the app to take my girlfriend Stephanie to see Hidden Figures in New York, and this week I used it again to take my parents to see Moana in Cupertino. Both of those movies were absolutely fantastic, so I can only assume that buying tickets with the Adam Tickets app basically guarantees that the movie will be good. I bought my parents' tickets to Moana using the app, and then the app sent QR codes to all three of us, so we were able to skip the ticket line and get into the movie just by displaying our phones. When Stephanie and I went to see Hidden Figures in New York, I was able to purchase snacks ahead of time using the Adam Tickets app, and the theater had a special line for Adam Tickets customers, so I was able to skip the regular line and pick up my order just by scanning the QR code on my phone. That didn't seem to be an option at the theater in Cupertino. So if you try out the app and it's not giving you the option to order snacks at a particular theater, it might be worth looking into other theaters in your area to see if that's an option at one of them. So again, if you want to check out the app, it's called Adam Tickets, A-T-O-M Tickets, 
and it's available now from the App Store or Google Play. And remember that you can also get $5 off your first order by using the promo code GALAXY. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.